I'm going to ask that you take your Bibles this morning with me, and we're going to go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we started our study in 1 Peter several months ago. We've had a couple of uh, interruptions in this process, but we're going to continue on. <clears throat> and so today we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're still looking at verses 11 and 12 that we started a couple of weeks ago. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. And so we're going to kind of finish the message that I started a couple weeks ago, looking at these two verses. And so let's read together. You can follow along as I read, starting at verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 2, and just the two verses, 11 and 12. The Bible says this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's take a minute to pray, and then we'll look at what God has for us today. Father, now we come before your word as it's open to us. Lord, we know that your word is absolute truth. It comes directly from you to us. You have used man as your agents, but Lord, we know this is your spoken word. And so as we look at what you have for us to say, may we open our hearts and minds, Lord. I pray that you would remove the distractions that we can pay attention and focus and learn the things that you want us to learn. Lord, we submit ourselves now to the authority of you and your word. And so use it to accomplish your purpose, we pray, in each one of us. Lord, I need your help physically, mentally, spiritually. I can't do this without you. And so I ask for a fresh filling of your spirit today. May you give me strength of voice, strength of body, and strength of mind, and give me the words to say so that we might hear from you. Lord, use me as your instrument now in this time. We submit ourselves to you now, and we thank you for what you're going to teach us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we were together in these verses, we looked at that command in verse 11, as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts. And that's being controlled literally by our physical bodies, the desires, the natural desires that come out of our bodies, things like hunger and thirst, the desire for companionship and acceptance, even uh, sexual satisfaction. Okay, all of those things God built into our bodies when he made us, but there's a specific way that God has given us for those things to be fulfilled. And ultimately, they're all fulfilled not only in his way, but in him. Okay, and so that's the command that Peter gave us in verse 11. He says, as strangers and pilgrims, you don't belong to this earth. He's mentioned that a couple times already. Our citizenship is in heaven. Because we don't belong to this earth, don't get attached to this earth and don't let the desires of this earth control you. And that's verse 11. Okay, and then that's the negative. Don't let this happen in your life. And in verse 12, we have the positive side of that, okay? So if we're not supposed to be controlled by our lusts, what are we supposed to do? And that's where he comes in in verse 12, and he says, 
having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, before I get into detail about that positive part of the command of what we are to be as believers, let me give you some information that kind of brings us up to this point, because from this point on, actually from verse 13 on, the focus changes a little bit for Peter. Everything that he gives us in chapter 1 and chapter 2 up to this verse is really foundational material that will help us to be able to understand and be able to put into practice everything else that happens in 1 Peter or everything else that he tells us, okay? So let me real, real quick remind us of what we've seen in 1 Peter so far. Number one, he says our salvation, this begins right in verse, in verse one of chapter one, our salvation is accomplished and secured through the power of God. You're not gonna lose it. If you're saved, it is secured by God, it's accomplished by God. Therefore, the salvation we have is both eternal and enduring because God himself is eternal and enduring. That's point number one we can't miss. Those who are saved are saved because of what God did in them, not because of something they did. Okay? God did it. God saved you. God will keep you saved, and God will keep you saved and continue to sanctify you all the way through to the time he calls us home to heaven. Okay? Point number one. Point number two, since we're saved, we're no longer citizens of this world. And we just saw that in verse 11. Okay, and Peter has mentioned that several times in these two chapters. We're no longer citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. And the, we have, therefore, an eternal inheritance, not a physical, material inheritance in this earth. And again, there is don't let your physical desires or your lust control you the physical things of the earth, okay? So that goes back to verse 11. And now, Peter has given us a number of illustrations in chapter 2 so far, at the beginning of the chapter, to emphasize this fact that we are a different kind of people, different citizens, not people of this earth, okay? And we looked at that. In verse 5, we looked at how we are now made living stones, built on top of the foundation stone of Jesus Christ, and all together we make up a spiritual house called the church. One church, not the building, the people, okay? So we are those living stones that make up one spiritual household. But in that house or that temple, we also are spiritual priests. We have been called by God to serve him in that church or in the church that we're in. So that's verse 5. Verse 9, he says then, to emphasize this unity that we have in Christ as one people, not of this earth, but of heaven, he says, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Emphasizing not just the unity we have in Christ, but again, we have been, in a sense, withdrawn or taken out of this earth, not physically yet, but spiritually, yes, so that our focus and our purpose now is heavenly rather than spiritually. So that's number two. Number three, since we're not citizens of the world, then we shouldn't live like we're citizens of the world. That's verse 11. Okay? Don't live according to your fleshly lusts. But rather we should live so as to reflect where our true home is, a spiritual home in heaven. And if we do that, then the result will be we will live in holiness 
according to the power that God has given us by his spirit to help us to live in holiness and to obey him in that regard. So that's number three. Since we're not citizens of this earth, don't live like citizens of this earth. Live like citizens of heaven. Number four, since we're believers, I'm sorry, since we as believers are more focused on our heavenly home than on our earthly home, and in our relationship with God as our Father than we are with our relationship with this earth, then we can maintain our joy even through physical suffering. He's already mentioned this. And in fact, the rest of the book, for the most part, is about how we live in the midst of suffering. And it's all based on our relationship with God. If we didn't have that, our response to suffering would be different. But since we have that relationship with God, since this is not our permanent home, since we have a better future ahead of us, then we can endure suffering and still maintain our joy. That's what Peter has told us already. And we're going to see that mentioned again, especially in chapters 3 and 4. Okay, so that's number 4. Number 5, the purpose for all of this is expressed in verse 12. Okay, and look at verse 12 again. He says, having your conversation honest. In other words, living in a way so that you exemplify all of the things I just said. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, we're going to take this verse and break it down a little bit, okay? Because we under, have to understand, what is the purpose of all this? Okay, God has saved us. God has secured us. God has given us an eternal inheritance. God has given us the power through his spirit to not live in our lusts, to live according to the control of the spirit in our lives. God has done all of this for us. God has even given us the ability to, to be able to sustain our faith in the midst of suffering. So what's the purpose? Verse 12, because people are watching. And you may say, well, pastor, you've preached on this before. Um, yeah, so has Peter, okay? I'm just telling you what Peter has said. And as I mentioned before, sometimes things are repeated so that we remember them. But I want to put this in context today so that we are prepared and have a foundation for the rest of the book of Peter. Because if we miss this purpose, the rest of Peter won't make sense to us, okay? So he says we are to live in honest conduct before the world. Our lives are to be honest before the world. And we already saw back in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, that's the command, that every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our conduct is to be lived out in holiness. That's the call that we've been given. Holiness is separate from sin, without sin, giving God the glory in everything. Now, is that possible? Yes, it's possible. If we do what the Holy Spirit tells us to do, we will never sin. Then why aren't we perfectly holy? Because we're human beings and we want our own way. And so we fight the Holy Spirit on those things. We ignore him in some things. We suppress his conviction in our lives. We are separated by God to that call, it is possible, but it's not probable because we're still humans, we're still fighting the battle of our own fleshly lusts, and that's where we lose the holiness. 
And so Peter gives us this command in verse 12, and he says, live your conduct in a way, and he uses the word honest, which is interesting. The word is honorable or without hypocrisy. In other words, and here's the, the, the uh, title of my message today, practice what you preach. Live so that when you say you're a Christian, people will look at you and go, oh yeah, he's a Christian. Not live according to our lust, verse 11, so that we say we're a Christian and then people look at our lives and they go, well, they don't look any different than I do. They don't live any differently than the rest of the people. So why do I need this so-called Savior? Okay, and that's the whole point. Peter says we're to live honestly, to live not as hypocrites, that our lives should reflect in our conduct what we say that we believe in this uh, faith that we claim. If we claim to love God foremost in our hearts, then we should live before the world as if God is the most important thing to us. And so often we don't. We talked about that when we looked at verse 11. Our priorities represent those things that we let control us. Our activities of life, our schedules, our investments, everything about us is a representation of our true priority. And does it reflect that God is most important to us or does it reflect that I've got other things that are most important and I've just added God to my life? And so Peter says, live honestly. Be honest about your faith in how you live. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, John says this, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have obeyed perfectly in your entire lives everything that's in the Bible? Okay, that's good. That means we're all starting at the same place. We're all starting in the right place. We are basically spiritually bankrupt and can't do anything good apart from God. Let me ask you this. How many of you know everything that God has told us to do in the Bible? Are we going to get to heaven and God's going to say, how come you didn't do this? And you go, oh, I didn't know that. What is this book for? For us to read. It is God's message for us to find out what he wants us to do and what he wants us to be. Now, if I told you that there were certain requirements for a job that all of you wanted to apply for, and I said, okay, you have to know this, you have to know this, you have to know this, you have to be able to do this, you have to be able to do this. Those are the requirements for the job. And you know what the requirements are, and then you don't do anything to prepare for the interview. And you come in and I ask you a question and say, okay, I told you to know this, what's the answer to this? You go, oh, uh, I, haven't, I don't know. Oh, well, have you done this? Well, no, you know, I didn't think that was that important. Well, God has given us all the requirements of what we are to be as Christians. It's not what we are to be to become Christians. It's what we are to be and that God has enabled us to, to be because we're Christians. And when we get to heaven, when, God, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and God says to us, how come you didn't do this? We can't say, oh, well, I didn't know that was in the Bible. 
if God is our priority, then his word will be our priority. And knowing his word will be our priority. And it's not fulfilled in just coming to church once or twice a week. We all have Bibles. We all can read And that's what God has given us to do. So we can find out personally. I've said this before. My job as a pastor is not to tell you everything that's in the Bible. My job as a pastor is to help you understand what you read in the Bible. It's your job to read it. It's my job to read it. Now, we don't all get it the first time. And believe me, I've read through the Bible a number of times And I'm still, you know, there are parts of the scripture I get through and I'm like, wow, I I have no idea yet. I don't have a handle on that one. Okay, so it's not about understanding everything perfectly as you read it, but it is our responsibility to read it. And that shows what our priority is. And so Peter says, live honestly. The activities of your life should demonstrate that God is your priority that he is the one you love the most. When we live according to our lust, verse 11, like the rest of the world, then we are literally defeating the purpose for which God called us, which comes in the second part of verse 12. And he says we have to live honestly because people are watching. Now, Paul gives the same message in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. There's another one of those representations of God being our priority, that we love one another, right? Because that's the greatest commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus said that. So Paul says, this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. He uses the same word Peter uses, sincere. It's a very close um, uh, parallel to being honest, living honestly, living sincerely without hypocrisy. And then he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So the fruit that comes out of our lives should look like what this book tells us it should look like. And if it doesn't, well, then the option is we have to go back to verse 11. We're living according to our lusts. That's the only two choices. Either we're living according to our lusts and our lives will exhibit the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh, I'm sorry, Or we will live in the Spirit honestly, and our life will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Love being the first part of that. Joy, peace, you know, all of those. And so here's the result of living honestly, instead of according to our lusts, but in true love for God and others. Because we're heavenly citizens, remember, we're accountable to God, not necessarily primarily to each other, although we are in love, but The result is, Peter says in the second half of verse 12, that what? That even when people who are not saved accuse you as evildoers, they might see by your good works the power of God in you. And in the end, they'll glorify God. Now, if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, very popular verse, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, what's the end of the verse? 
do all to the glory of God. Everything is not about us. Everything should be about God and giving him the glory. And so Peter says here we should live not only so that we give him glory, but so that our testimony before other people causes them to give God glory, even unsaved people. He uses the word Gentiles here, contrasting that with believers. Gentiles is a general word that he uses for sinners. Okay? So he says our testimony, the way you live your life, can, if you live honestly according to your faith, cause other people to glorify God, even the unsaved. Now, I want to break this down because, first of all, Peter says that unbelievers will speak ill of you. They will speak, in fact, accuse you of false things. They call you evildoers. And Jesus said this was happened in Matthew chapter 5. I think Peter was listening that day that Jesus taught this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Isn't that what Peter just said? For my sake. And what's our response? If we're living honestly, what did Jesus say the response to that was? Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice in suffering. Rejoice in persecution. Rejoice in being mocked because you're different than the world. That's what Jesus said. And it did happen, just like Christ said it would. In fact, church historians relate this, uh, this about the early Christians. Many of the, especially in Rome, many of the citizens around them accused them of false things. In fact, Nero who was the emperor at this time that Peter is writing, accused the Christians of burning down Rome. And he was the very one who did it because he wanted to remodel one of his residences. But he accused the Christians. The government brought false accusations against them, such as terrorism, atheism. They accused Christians of atheism because they didn't have any idols, and so you're not really even worshiping a god. They accused them even of cannibalism in the Lord's Supper because they called the bread the body of Christ. Um, immorality, because they had extreme love for one another. The right kind of love, but because they talked about and lived in love so much, the world accused them of immorality. In fact, they accused them of damaging trade and social progress, of leading slaves into insurrection, because of their teachings about the freedom we have in Christ, and it goes on and on and on and on. So all of these false accusations were leveled at believers in the early church because people outside didn't understand. They're totally different than us. They do everything different from us. There's something wrong with them because they don't fit in. Now, the same thing is happening to us. We, if you're not already, you will be falsely accused by unbelievers. In fact, our government has passed hate crimes already in which it's illegal to speak the things that the Bible tells us what is sin and what is not. It is a crime in many places, especially even in Canada today. You can go to Canada, and I know 
at least two or three pastors have gone to jail because they spoke out about homosexuality being a sin. That's a, cr- a hate crime. And I don't think it's long before it's going to happen in our country as well. Even other so-called Christians will falsely accuse you when you choose to live according to the Spirit in this thing called legalism. Now, there are legitimate aspects of legalism that should be avoided in our lives. And legalism basically comes down to living in a certain way according to certain rules so that I can be saved. That's the essence of legalism. And if you're living that way, then that's legalist. Okay, But people will also accuse legalists, um, because I choose to have certain standards based on the convictions that God has given me, people who don't have those same convictions have accused me of legalism because I live differently from them. Well, it's not about legalism. It's about me following the Spirit of God and what I believe I should be doing in my life. And the same is true for you. We don't do things in our lives because somebody tells us to do them. We do things because we believe, based on our study of Scripture and our prayer for God to show us in these different areas of our lives, this is what I believe God wants me to do, and here's the substance from God's Word to show why I believe that. The problem with many what I'll call false Christians, because it mostly comes from people who want to be Christians but not live like Christians, okay, the the reason that, that attack of legalism comes against those who really want to follow the Lord is because it convicts them. The difference in a true believer's life convicts those that say they're following Christ and are not in reality. So you have to criticize. You have to step on them. You have to put them down. And it makes them in some way feel more superior spiritually because, oh, in Christ Christ I'm free. I have liberty. I can choose. I can do whatever I want. I'm still saved. That's... Literally, false accusations. Okay, so there's many, asp- or many ways that these false accusations can manifest themselves from other people against us if we're truly trying to follow Christ, okay? But it's also our lifestyle of surrender to God's Spirit and the life that looks different from everybody else that will convict them because they don't care about following Christ. Either, be- well, probably because they're unsaved. Whether they go to church, whether they call themselves or Christians or not, someone who doesn't care about following Christ can't be saved. That's what the Bible says. Okay? Now, look at this word that, it, that uh, Peter uses here. He says, um, Whereas they speak evil against you, that they may buy your good works, which they shall behold. In other words, they're watching. Okay? The word behold here is they shall be eyewitnesses of, or they shall inspect. It's not just, oh, I saw something. They are watching every aspect of our lives. And Peter says, they are watching every moment. And he says, if they watch you every moment, what are they seeing? Do they see that your life reflects the same thing that you say you believe Or are you living dishonestly? Tertullian was an early church father. He contrasts the early Christians and the heathen. He said, he pointed out some of the differences between them. He said, the heathen delighted in the bloody gladiatorial spectacles of the amphitheater. Okay, if you studied Rome, you know 
the brutality that occurred. Gladiators would, would be full armor and weapons, and they'd go against not only wild animals, but also against Christians, and basically just tear them apart for sport. But he says, the heathen delighted in that, whereas a Christian was excommunicated from the church if he even attended one of those events. That's how strongly the church thought about that kind of entertainment. He says, at that time, no Christian was ever found in prison for a crime, but only for their faith, because Christians live differently. The heathens excluded slaves from their religious services, but the Christians, on the other hand, actually had some of their elders that were slaves. Think about that. There were elders in the church that were slaves. That's different. And because of the Christian's influence, slavery silently and gradually disappeared because of the law of love that governs us. Okay, this idea that all men are created equal is not something that started with our government or the Declaration of Independence or our Constitution. God created all men equal, and therefore we need to love all men equally. That's the law of, of the believer. He goes on, when the pagans deserted their nearest relatives in a plague, Christians were the ones who came in and ministered to the sick and dying, disregarding their own health. When the Gentiles left their dead unburied after a battle and cast their wounded into the streets, guess who it was that came to bury the dead and to take care of the wounded? The early church. They were totally different than everybody around them. And so our life and the way we live in God's truth should be totally different, and it can be the very thing that brings someone not only to the attention of God's working in their life and the manifestation of God all around them, but to the realization that God has a standard for us and we have all fallen short. And so it brings conviction of sin upon other people. It could be another believer who is out of fellowship with God. It could be an unsafe person wondering what makes you different. But in the end, it is your holiness produced through our submission to God's spirit and God's word, which will be manifest through the suppression of our lust, as Peter says in verse 11, and our submission to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God in our life in all aspects. And so that goes all the way back to chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Be holy in all manner of your conduct. How do you do that? Let the Holy Spirit control you and don't live according to your lusts. So it all culminates here in, chap in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Now, he says that our good works of submission and obedience to God and holiness will cause others to give glory to God in the day of visitation. Now, I want to look at that phrase, the day of visitation. The word for visitation in the Greek is episcope. It means to inspect or superintend over. If you were with us when we studied through the church and the elders of the church, one of the words that is given to elders in the Bible is presbyter, or I'm sorry, is episkopos, one who oversees the functioning of the church, one who has very close um, uh, relationship, and it has a very 
in keen inspection of what's going on within the house of God so that it can be directed according to God's word. That, that's one of the jobs of an elder. Okay, And here, Peter uses the word visitation, episcope, which means to inspect or superintend, and he's talking about the day of visitation. Well, what is that day of visitation, that day of inspection? Well, there are two inspections, if you want to call them that, or two days of judgment that are recorded in Scripture. The first is for believers. When we are resurrected and stand before Christ after his millennial, I'm sorry, at the begin, after his millennial kingdom, um, we will stand at what is what called the, the Bema seat. Okay, that's how it's used in the Greek, the Bema seat. And it's talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is explaining to us um, that even though we live on the physical earth, our home is in heaven, and someday we're going to have to stand before God and give an account for everything that we've done. And he says, we're going to stand at the judgment seat. In chapter 5 of verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That's Christians. So that's the Bema seat judgment. The term judgment seat or Bema seat, the Greek word actually comes from a platform that stood, they found ruins in, in Corinth, okay, it stood in Corinth, and that was the platform from which a judge would judge sinners, okay, or those who committed crimes. But it was also the platform which athletes who won, say, for instance, an Olympic, Olympic game, if they won their event, they would come and stand on that platform, and then the rewarder, the person in charge, would say, well done, and give them their crown. And so the Bema Seat is not to judge all of the bad things that we've done as Christians. The Bema Seat is actually for God to give us the rewards that we've earned as we've served him, as we have lived honestly, as Peter says here. Okay? That's the first inspection. The second is for unbelievers. And that will happen at the end of the millennial kingdom, and it will uh, take place at what's called the, white, the, the great white throne judgment. All believers will stand before God and receive their final condemnation because they have not believed. Revelation chapter 20 talks about this in verses 11 through 15. John says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the second inspection, and that's for unbelievers. And so this day of visitation that Peter's talking about is this day, okay? The final judgment, either for believers or for unbelievers, I believe. Because as believers, we will receive those rewards, but then the Bible tells us we will cast those crowns back at the feet of Jesus. Because who was it that really deserves them? Us or the Lord that saved us? And as unbelievers stand before God at the great white throne judgment, 
God will inspect their lives. And Jesus says in Matthew 25, there are many who are going to stand before me and say, Lord, I did all these things in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. The real, true inspection is coming. And so that's why Peter says, as believers, we need to live honestly, without hypocrisy. And he says, even at the end time, in that day of judgment, unbelievers will give glory to God. Now, how can that be possible? Aren't they being judged because they have fallen short of glorifying God in their lives? Yes, that's the whole point. They're being judged because they did not give God glory in everything. They rejected that. But what does Philippians 2 tell us? Talking about Christ, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at, <clears throat> excuse me, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that, I'm sorry, in things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even at the final judgment of sinners, when they are condemned to hell, they will have to give God glory. And they can't say, I didn't know. Because we are the witness that God has put in this earth to let them know. And that's why Peter says it's so important for us to live honestly living out the truth of what we say we believe because literally when God stands with those, those un unbelievers at judgment and they say, well, I didn't know, and he's going to point to us and say, I gave you the truth embodied in these people. Now, you talk about a massive responsibility on us as the church. There it is. How many people, in essence, are we going to be responsible for because we don't live out the truth honestly? But God says that they may glorify your, God, your, your Father in heaven at the day of visitation. That means there are people who will watch us who will see what's different in our lives, and God will use us as the only Bible they may have ever read to bring them to Christ. Because they'll start asking, what's different about them? What makes them tick? Why do they do the things that they do? Why are they so different? And the answer is in God's Word. But if we don't start by living it out, they won't care about getting to the answer. And so many of those people who see us in our lives every day may come to a, knowledge of, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through our testimony. And what about the ones who don't believe, who continue to curse us, to falsely accuse us? They will stand before Christ, and Christ will point at us and say, I gave you the truth. I gave you the example I gave you everything you needed, including my word right here, which is lived out in these people's lives. You have no excuse. And so unbelievers at that day will actually kneel before God and say, you are just, you are right in sending me to hell because I deserve it. 
because I've ignored the truth of God. Your life may be the only Bible that some people ever read. So the question is, what does the Bible of your life teach people around you about the God that you say you serve and love? In the end, you are always influencing people. Always. You may not even realize the people that are watching you. And you're either influencing them toward God by living honestly or away from God by living according to your lust. Our calling as believers is to live out the gospel in our conduct, not just preach it in our conversation. And if we do not practice what we preach, then literally, I hate to say it this way because it's not our fault necessarily, but we're sending people to hell. Now, they're condemned because they did not believe. But if we fail in our opportunity and our responsibility to show the truth, not just in our words, but in our actions, then in a sense, their blood is on us. Now, let me close with this observation. And I said at the beginning, understanding everything that we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2 prepares us for everything else that happens in, in 1 Peter, especially in chapter two, the, the second part of chapter 2 and in chapter 3. Okay? So Peter asked this question, are you going to live as God's people in a godless world to show them a true picture of who God is? That's chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. It all comes to that question. You are saved. Are you going to live like it so that your testimony of living in truth shows people who God is and why they need him? Why is this important? Because the rest of the book, especially 2 and 3, is the practical application of this principle. And as I already mentioned, he's going to ask this question, are you going to live as God's people in a godless world, live honestly, giving the testimony of the truth in everything that you do, showing the holiness of God as you're led by the Spirit through all of your circumstances? Now, you can look ahead, and I encourage you to look ahead. Because all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 is about living that testimony out in the midst of suffering. And he gives three examples in chapter 2 and 3. Number one, our relationship with our government. Number two, our relationship with our employers or employees, the people we work for. And number three, our relationship in our marriage when we're suffering. Very, very practical applications here. But if we miss chapters 1 and 2, we don't understand really the message of the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. Chapter 4, the entire chapter is devoted to how we respond to suffering. But we have to get this first. Are we going to live as God's people in a godless world so that God is seen through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and thank you for this challenge today. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take seriously this truth that you've given us from your word. As we live our lives, it shouldn't be controlled by the things that we want or the things that we feel. 
but literally all of our priorities, all of our schedule, all of our money, everything that we do should be controlled by the fact that you are our God and that you are our Savior and that none of what we have on this earth matters. Really, the only thing that matters is if we are part of your family and if we are bringing other people into your family. And so, Lord, convict us of our failures in this way. Lord, we say that we can't be perfectly holy. We understand that because we're human beings. But if we just obeyed you and listened to you, we would be a whole lot closer. So, Lord, help us in that regard to live out the testimony of your truth in everything in our lives so that people watching us will be pointed to you, that they might give you glory as believers coming into your kingdom rather than as sinners going into judgment. Thank you again for your love for us, for this lesson today. May we not forget it soon. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Our closing.